My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to invite you to open up to our Scripture reading today. We're still going closer and closer to the cross, examining what happened to Christ in those final days of His life and then those final moments. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23 today. So if you've got a Bible that you brought with you, great. If not, you can open up your phone or your, or your iPad or whatever you've got, or there should be a Bible in a chair within reach. Luke 23. So we're in the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third Gospel, chapter 23. And we're going to start with verse 44, Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. As we start this morning, I want you to think about fences and think about what it is that fences do or what do fences accomplish. And my first question is, do you think that this fence would accomplish its purpose? Probably not so much, huh? What about this fence? (laughs) Probably a little design flaw, because fences are usually designed, right, to either keep something in or to keep something out, right? So if you've got like a new puppy, you want a fence so that they don't run away. Or if you have a convicted criminal... We put them someplace inside a fence or a wall so that it creates a barrier. We want to keep them in. Sometimes we want to keep kids out. If you've got a pool and you've got some neighborhood kids that are curious, you want a fence to keep your kids out of the pool, right? Or if we have people who are maybe trying to come into the country and we don't want them in our country, we talk about putting up a fence or a wall to try to keep them out, right? This is what we do with fences. But we have to ask ourselves a question when we think about these kinds of fences or barriers. And the question is, do you think they actually work? Do they actually accomplish the purpose that they're designed to accomplish of keeping something in or out? And uh, we took a little survey of the, on the app, and uh, about 80% of the people recognize that fences only give you the illusion of security. They don't actually give you actual security. And I've got some evidence of that. <laughs> Just when you thought it was safe. I'm not sure if that's trying to keep him in or out, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on here either. But apparently somebody has a fence fail, and uh, and then this one also caught my eye. (laughs) How high would you have to build that fence in order for it to actually work, keeping those dogs in or out? I don't know. And then, of course, sometimes we don't actually need a fence. We create our own kind of barriers, and I got a kick out of this picture, too. (laughs) There's actually quite a few of those where a dog's trying to get in or out of something but can't because it's got the big stick in his mouth. Why do we need fences? It seems like we feel like we got to have something, maybe privacy, maybe security. we got to have something to protect ourselves. So we put up these 
barriers. Two of the most famous walls or fences that were ever created kind of show the uh, challenge that comes with building a fence. Uh, the, the top two fences or walls that come up, if you Google this, are the, the Great Wall of China and the Berlin Wall. Those are the first two that come up. And both of these worked for a while, but in the end, they didn't accomplish the purpose that they were desired to accomplish. Sometimes fences need to get broken down. Sometimes a barrier needs to be breached. In fact, oftentimes we put up a fence thinking it's going to be permanent and secure and last forever, but it gets breached at some time. And this is the story of actually of Luke 23. Luke 23 is the story of a, a barrier, a wall, a fence that gets breached. And Luke is trying to tell us something really important here. Now, one of the things I do when I'm reading Scripture is I try to pay careful attention to what is it that I didn't expect in this passage. So as I'm reading this passage in Luke 23, the thing that jumps out, of my, out at my attention is all of a sudden we're talking about the temple. We've been taken from this hill outside Jerusalem where Jesus is nailed to the cross dying. All of a sudden our attention is drawn to the temple. So I'm curious, what is Luke trying to do with his particular story here? And then I pay attention to other places where Luke has drawn our attention to the temple. And Luke actually does this all the time. Luke's story actually starts in the temple. Of all the Gospels, this is where he decides to start his story. So if you jump way back to Luke chapter 1, the first character we meet is a priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah has just been given the honor of being the one who's going to go into the temple to light the incense. And the incense, this was was an important part of their worship. The temple was kind of key to their worship. And they had, uh, actually the temple itself was built with a bunch of different barriers in mind. The temple for the people of God was thought to be the place This is the place where God dwells. If you want to get close to God, then you want to go to the temple. And people would make pilgrimages to the temple, and they would come and get as close as they could. In the very inner part of the temple was the place called the Holy of Holies. This was the most sacred place. It was thought that God dwelt in the very center of the temple. And then there was a barrier to keep people from going into that, and there was the next court, which was the holy place. The holy place was open to priests, priests could go in there and they could make the sacrifice. This was where Zechariah was going to go and make his offering, his prayer. He was going to put the incense on the table and the smoke would rise. And this was a picture of God's, uh, the prayer of God's people rising to God. Luke wants, for some reason, to get our attention on the temple. And so when he starts telling us the story, he starts telling about this place where Zechariah is going. And he starts talking about a God who's listening to the prayers of his people. This is where the story starts. And then the story actually continues there. Luke chapter 2 has this, uh, the birth of Jesus. And then the next thing that Luke tells us about is, well, as was their custom, when he was eight days old, Jesus was taken to the temple. Listen to how how Luke talks about this. When the time comes for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Something important is going on here. Luke is saying, we got to get to the temple, and Jesus has to get to the temple. He's got to be consecrated. He's set aside for some special purpose. When they get to the temple, we meet two very eccentric characters right away at the beginning of this story. Uh, One of them is named Simeon. Simeon's an old man, and Simeon has been given this promise of God that says, Simeon, you're old, but you are not going to die until you see my salvation revealed to you. 
So every day, Simeon goes to the temple. He's looking for God's salvation. When Jesus shows up, Simeon breaks into song. This is what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What is it that he saw? He saw Jesus coming into the temple with Mary and Joseph. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of God's people. The second person they run into in the temple is a prophetess. She's 84 years old. Her name is Anna. She has also been going to the temple every day, worshiping day and night and fasting and praying. And she comes up to Mary and Joseph in the temple at this very moment when they arrive. And she gives thanks to God and she speaks about this child as the one that that all of God's people have been looking forward to. This child coming into the temple is the one that everyone's been waiting for, longing to see God's salvation come. Luke doesn't want us to miss that there is some important connection between Jesus and this temple. He makes it very clear. The next thing he tells us about is a few years later. Jesus is 12. You remember this story? They've gone up to Jerusalem. When they leave, Jesus isn't with them. They have this frantic search. This is what happens. When they did not find Jesus, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, you have treated us like this. And she probably said something more like, you rotten Jesus. Can you imagine three days in Jerusalem looking for your 12-year-old kid? Son, you have treated... Why have you treated us like us? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus answered them and said this, Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Jesus says, this is where I belong, in the temple. I'm here in my father's house. You follow the temple references in, in Luke, and you'll also find Jesus standing on the peak of the temple when he's tempted in the next chapter by the devil. And then later you'll find him in the temple disgusted by those who have made this place a, place, a marketplace. They're selling, they're changing money, they're selling doves, the sacrifices, and Jesus whips them out. He makes a cord a, into a whip, and he whips these guys and turns their tables over, and he, he casts them out of the temple. Because they've turned the temple into something it's not supposed to be. They've turned this temple into uh, a marketplace instead of the house of prayer. When we get toward the final days of Christ, we see that we are told that he went to the temple every morning of that last week. He went to the temple to teach. Jesus loves going to the temple. And why shouldn't he love going there? This was his father's house. He wanted to be there near. Now, there was one problem, though, because this temple was kind of cordoned off into sections, and you weren't allowed to get into all the sections. So I had already told you about the middle section, the Holy of Holies, where it was thought that God dwelt, and then the next section, the most holy place where the priests would go and burn their incense. The next court out would have been kind of the sanctuary space. Jewish men could go into this part of the temple, but nobody else. And then you had on the out outer rim was the, the court, the outer court, the Gentile court, they called it. Others could go into that. Many people could go there. So people want to go to the temple of God. They understand that God is dwelling in the Holy of Holies. They want to get as close as they can to God. But there's all these barriers. They can't get near to God. 
They can get to this court, or maybe if you're a priest, you can get to this court. Or if you're the high priest, you can get into the Holy of Holies, but then only once a year. And then you go into that court to make atonement, to pay for the sins of all of God's people one time each year. So this temple was the place where God dwelt, but you couldn't get that close to God. God was cordoned off, and there was a barrier that kept everyone from the Holy of Holies. Now, this wasn't your typical kind of fence or wall. You know what this barrier was made out of? A curtain. Now, don't think of your grandma's lace curtains. This is a big, massive curtain. I have an example here. This curtain was 60 feet tall. And some of you happen to notice this thing laying on the floor, which had a little unexpected consequence for me this morning. This also created a barrier for some, because I noticed there was lots of this hopping over, and then I noticed I wasn't paying attention. I just about tripped and fell up there. So this created a sufficient barrier. This is 60 feet from this table to the back of this fabric. 60 feet. That's how tall this curtain was. And it was 30 feet wide, which is not quite from pillar to pillar in this room. 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. And you know how thick this curtain was? Four inches. That's thicker than a two-by-four. Four inches of curtain. And this fabric was hung between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. A barrier. Now, if anybody's going to create a barrier like this, the question you might want to ask is, What are they trying to contain? Is this barrier to try to keep something in or trying to keep something out? Now, if you think this barrier is to keep God in, you might suspect that, but this doesn't actually fit with the story of Scripture. If you read about God's desires throughout Scripture, here's God's desire. God's desire from page one of the Scriptures is this. He wants to be with His people. This is what God wants more than anything. And we see that he's constantly making efforts to do this. It starts with him walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve sin, what happens? God doesn't stop coming to the garden. God doesn't stop seeking them. No, they go and they hide. God is still looking for his people. And this is the story of the rest of the Bible. God is constantly out there looking for his people and trying to find a way to build a bridge to them so that when God's people are like fleeing from Egypt, God goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is there leading them. We see that later God wants to reveal himself to his people, so he, 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 he gives his law to Moses. He meets Moses on the mountaintop. God wants to be with his people. We see later that he continues to speak to them, and gives them messages. He speaks to them through the prophets and through the kings. These are all ways for God to kind of interact with his people, for him to be with his people. God wants to dwell with them. We see that this continues all the way to the end. If you're reading in the book of Revelation, the one great desire that comes at the end of the book of Revelation is this, that God would dwell with his people. This is what God wants. So if you think that this big, massive curtain is set up to try to keep God in the Holy of Holies, that might not be the main purpose for it. Well, maybe it's to keep us out. Could that be the reason why the curtain's there? Maybe we have a problem coming near to a holy God. And this might be closer to reality because, if again, if you look at God's interaction with his people, it's always mediated. There's never in Scripture this, like, direct face-to-face interaction with God. You don't get that. No, people get to see things like the back of God. They get to be sheltered in the palm of God's hands. They get to hear God's law revealed through his prophets. They get to hear pieces of God or catch glimpses of God or experience a part of God. They don't get to see all of God. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah, when he has his vision of God, he's transported up into the heavenlies. He's in the throne room of God. What does he get to see? 
He actually gets to see the, the robes of God on the throne. And when he sees just the robes of God coming down off the fro- throne, you know his reaction, right? Oh, woe is me. I am undone. And the reason he's undone is because he's a man of unclean lips and he's living with a bunch of people who are unclean. And so he knows this. He can't see God. We need a barrier. We need to mediate God's presence. We can't be that close to God and live as sinful people. This is clear throughout Scripture. So this big curtain that provides a barrier, a wall, a fence between us and God is designed, I think, to keep us from getting too close to God, lest we are undone, lest we are consumed by God's goodness. This is what would happen if sinful people went into the presence of a holy God. Now, you might be thinking that I have strayed a long way from that cross. But the writer of Hebrews, who's the one who seems to be most interested in this curtain, who seems to be most interested in the temple, who seems to be most interested in about what going, goes on here, he starts talking about what happens when somebody pays the price for our sins. Is there a way for us to remove this barrier? Is there a way for us to come close to God? And now the writer in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, he's talking about sacrifices that are made to pay for sins. And this is classic religion, you know. A classic religious perspective says, I got to like pay for my problems. I got to set things right. And so if I try to be good, if I try to measure up, if I try to obey, then maybe I can balance the scales. I mean, I think a lot of people look at it this way. You know, there's bad, all the bad things I do. And then there's some good things I can do. And if I can, if I can do enough good things, then maybe I can pay for my sin. Maybe I can balance the scales. I can set things right that are wrong. This is a classic religious perspective. I'm going to pay for my own sins. Well, we see that that's not the way it works in the Bible. They have these sacrifices that are set up, and it's often these animals, they got to come, and they come into the temple every year, and they make these sacrifices in order to try to balance those scales, to try to make things right. The writer of Hebrews recognizes this isn't going to work either. Every year you got to come back and make another sacrifice, and the second you walk out of the temple, you sin, you're in a deficit again. We need a different kind of sacrifice, not an, a- not an animal, but a man. What if we sacrificed a man? The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. It wasn't by sacrificing an animal. But he did enter the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, well, they can be sanctified by them outwardly. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will this cleanse us? Now this temple talk has taken us right back to the cross, talking about the one whose blood is shed, whose blood is poured out, the one who has become another kind of mediator between us and God, another one who would shed his blood to pay for sins so that the way to the holy place would be thrown open, so that our 
sin could be paid for so that we could dwell with God, so that we could draw near to Him. Again, listen to the writer of Hebrews, what he says. Therefore, he says, because Christ has made this sacrifice, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who promised is faithful. In Jesus, we who were once far away have been brought near. We who were once strangers and foreigners and aliens, we who were once on the wrong side of the fence have been brought near. He destroys the barrier. He brings redemption. He brings the forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself becomes our passageway in to the presence of God. Paul has an interesting spin on this in Ephesians. He says, consequently, because of what Christ has done, we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. Do you hear what that's saying? We become the temple in which God dwells. And it happens because Christ's blood was shed for us. And this is what God wants more than anything God wants to break out of the Holy of Holies so that he can go dwell with his people. The veil in the temple, this massive curtain, this wall, this barrier, was a visible and constant reminder that sin renders us unable to come into God's presence, unable to dwell with God. It was a dividing wall. The fact that these sacrifices had to be repeated every year demonstrated that this system that they had didn't work. But these sacrifices were looking forward to a greater sacrifice, the one made by Jesus Christ for us once for all when he finally died on that cross. The veil being torn from top to bottom is actually a fact of history, and this isn't just recorded in Scripture. It's recorded in some of the Jewish historians as well. They talk about this very disturbing account of the ripping of the curtain, and this four-inch, 60-feet-tall, 30-foot-wide curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom, which makes me imagine that God was the ripper of this curtain. The God who had been contained in this holy of holies says, no more. I'm going to be free now because you are now free to come into my presence and draw near to me. And so I was imagining this week as I was listening to this or looking at this passage, I imagined that um, all the gospel writers are very clear about what happened, that at the very moment that Christ took his last breath, the curtain ripped. So you'd hear the sound of Jesus' final breath, and the next sound was a mighty ripping. Because in that sacrifice, 
Jesus said, I have opened the way for you to come near to God. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace. That's what the writer of the Hebrews concludes. Because Christ has accomplished this, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we, re- we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. And that's what I'd like to invite you to do right now. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning to give thanks for that sacrifice made for us once for all. Because of that sacrifice, we can come before you boldly and confidently. In Jesus' name. Well, what a beautiful picture. You know, when I think of Adam and Eve in the garden, I was kind of took back to a time when I was a kid. One of our the favorite games that we always played was hide-and-seek. And when everybody got tired of playing, there was somebody at the end, when you couldn't find somebody who had hid so well, they'd always holler out. You remember what they'd holler? Ollie, ollie, income free. That's the veil being ripped in two. Adam and Eve had plunged themselves into a lostness, and God initiated through his great love the first game of hide-and-seek. He came to find that which was lost. And that's the invitation that he makes to each of us every time that we come together to celebrate the sacrament of communion with one another. It's all the the income free. All of the sin that we've hidden in our lives, all the, the dirty little secrets that we don't want anybody to know about us. He already knows. One of the warnings that Scripture encourages us to pay very you know, strict attention to is it says that every person should examine themselves before they partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not about worthiness. It's about making sure that you experience the vastness, the depth, and the breadth of God's love for you. This table declares to us that there is nothing, nothing in our lives that separates us from the love and the mercy of God. And when Jesus breathed his last and said it was finished and the veil ripped in two, he he meant it. So every time that we come together every month, we come to celebrate this supper. We come to celebrate and remember what Jesus did for us as Kent so elegantly shared with us this morning. But I think it's important for us to also remember that it's, this is a feast, this is a supper of communion, where we actually get to commune with the one who loved us enough to find us in our darkness. It's also a feast of hope. Everybody say hope. And Jesus is, in the Bible is referred to as the great hope. And really the great hope that is taught in Scripture is the return, is this one who suffered and bled and died and who was raised from the dead is promised to come back and take us to spend eternity with him in heaven. As our elders get ready to come, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads and let's take a few moments. Let's invite the Spirit of God to search our hearts and let's just uh, listen to the cry of the Father to us this morning who's saying to every one of us here, 
Ollie, Ollie, and come free.